Hi everyone and welcome to the Sanya Faruqi show. Today we have somebody joining in from Somalia. She is Dr. Deko Muhammad, a Somalia-born obstetrician, gynecologist and founder of the Hagala Institute and co-founder of the Somali Cancer Society. The Hagala Institute focuses on capacity building, medical research, data collection and training of medical personnel in Somalia and other African countries. Dr. Mohammed works full time on the ground in Somalia and leads project on maternal health nationwide. She leads the National Call Center for COVID-19, follow-up doctors department and is also part of the Somali National Task Force for COVID-19 in 2020. Dr. Mohammed is the president of the Dr. Hava Abdi Foundation in USA. Dr. Mohammed also worked with Doctors Without Borders in 2008 to 2010 in Somalia. Thank you so much, Dr. Deko. It is wonderful to have you on the Sanya Faruqi show today. Thank you for having me. So, um, you know, I want to begin by asking, you know, tell us how Dr. Hava Abdi Foundation started. It was started by your mother in 1983, and it's been a driving force for helping refugees in Somalia since 1983. So just take us through that. Uh, my mom started and how Abdi Foundation, uh, actually in the beginning was the rural health development organization. So her goal was uh, her mother died giving a birth. So and she became a doctor gynecologist. Her goal was make sure every mother's have a delivery, access to health, uh, clean delivery and safe delivery. So that's why she started as a, a rural health de development in 1983 all the way to 1991. In 1991, when the civil war started, she has to do more than healthcare. So she has to make sure she provided the shelter, the food, the, you know, a lot of international organizations were trusting her, like WFP, ICRC was working with her. So we had to transition just to being a, a rural health development, an organization that covers everything. So that's why it's decided Dr. Hawa Abdi Foundation and officially be registered and launched in U.S. in 2010 when we received the award Glamour Woman of the Year. Then a lot of, you know, outcry, people want to help us. Like, none of us are physicians, all of us are physicians. None of us had a background of running nonprofit wallets. Like, we don't have the time. I remember when the first time they called me, it's like, you need to do this, this Glamour magazine. It's like, oh, no, I'm in a surgery. Sorry, I, I don't even understand what Glamour magazine is. So that's how the journey took off. But last 10 years, I think it was a blessing. Me being last 14 years on the ground working with it, it gave us an opportunity to expand our work and to do more efficient. Yeah, and you've gone ahead and expanded it even more by also starting the Hagala Institute. So what kind of work do you do over there? Hagala Institute is my frustration. That's what I explained to the people for being in, in Somalia and born in Africa and, and not having effective research, not having effective capacity building. Uh, Somalia's healthcare is run for last uh, 30 years by international NGOs. And basically what they do, they come in a short window. I really witnessed when I work in the MSF, one of the best international NGOs, but still doesn't have the time to teach the health personnel more deeply, more uh, effectively leaving something behind. So every organization is comes in, teaches very shallow level. Then we develop this massive of healthcare workers who have not enough sufficient capacity or knowledge, but calling themselves doctors, nurses. So 
and the malpractice they do, that's what I have seen in my emergency room. So I was like, we have to figure out what to do. So that's the, the main thing was capacity building. And uh, of course, the research, there's no data in Somalia. That's another frustration. If you try to Google anything in any level, in any capacity, you see maybe small numbers from UNICEF or WHO, like 2003 or 1991. So and there's a huge gap of 10, 20 years. There's no data done. So that's another thing we, we want to do it uh, and, and really it become a, a platform more academic where we were missing a lot of things. So I'm, I'm, very, I'm very lucky to add that section into the work we're doing. Yeah. Um, so, you know, you're a second generation doctor in your family. What inspired you to take it up as a profession? Is it very common for women in Somalia to take it up? How, or is it very difficult? Did you have to go through a lot of challenges as a woman and also as a Muslim woman to become a doctor? Absolutely. <laughs> There's a hundred challenges, but I'm lucky I had a very strong parents and my as an African child, my, my destiny was set up. So when I was a teenager, I never wanted to become a doctor. I was like historian or writing or academia, what I was very passionate about. It might be becoming a professor, but my mom, no, 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 I'm building a hospital. We need a doctor. So, mm -hmm. and really, I was struggling as a teenager. My mom was in the university teaching. I didn't want her to be her student. She was a tough professor. Uh, then civil war happened. When civil war happened, I have seen in the first hand. So I had to deliver when I was 15, not even having a medical background, nothing. So I just had to watch this woman while my mom and nursing are doing the surgery, and she just delivered. And I had to just assist her to deliver while I was screaming. <laughs> so I, I really felt the need of the capacity is missing, you know, there's not enough medical professionals. And at the same time, I could have discussion with my uh, patients, you know, my history, my love of discussion with the people and listening people, it came from there. It's like, okay, I can find my passion within the medicine. And my curiosity might be in the research in medicine. So that's what my journey, I think, Literally, if civil war never happened, I would be struggling to become a doctor. But I think civil war in Somalia just opened me a door and, and allowed me to think about it. You know, I would be more impactful being a doctor than being a, a professor where the schools were closed. So what I will do in the, in the middle of civil war? Yeah, yeah. Um, I want to know a little about your mother as well. You know, what was it like growing up watching such a fantastic, powerful and a dedicated woman. She was also nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize uh, with many more prestigious awards. So yeah, tell us about her and uh, what was the kind of impact that she had on you? Uh, it was amazing in one hand and in the other hand it was very tough because it, everything you do, it's not enough for her. She, she set a very high standard. You know, you, whatever you do is like you have everything, you have the parents, you have a roof in your head, we are feeding you, I grew up in this environment. So it's very, very tough, but in the same time, it's very, very inspiring, the way she negotiated with elderly, the way she stood up as a woman, the way she taught us like, your femininity or being a woman should not hold you back. 
because we're in a society where, as you woman, you were undermined. I remember when my parents were sending me at the age of 16, going 17 to the college, all my neighbors, everyone was like, it's the time to give her marriage, you're not to send a college. So you, your, your daughter will come all, you know, and she will not have a marriage. You never know what's going to happen when she's sent somewhere. So she really fought, uh, fought hard for all this weak cultures, you know, habits and cultures and things that hold women back. And she's like, nope. And I think her character and her drive and ambition came because they were a family of four girls. They never had a brother. So they developed this very strong uh, female character that really have the excellent skills of negotiating with a man and understanding the culture of Somalia. So I yeah. think that's what I learned and, and that's what I try to implement in the work of my life. Mm-hmm. Um, about, also about growing up amidst uh, refugee camps, witnessing ground realities about poverty, lack of health care and everything existential crisis. Uh, tell me about your childhood and how that has impacted your life today and, you know, made you who you are. Like you said, if the civil war had not taken place, you would not become a doctor today. No. Uh, in the beginning of my childhood was this little clinic outside of the city where my mom started rural health development. So my frustration was very young child, like why we are leaving the city. You know, I couldn't understand why we were moving rural health. And it was only her family and people my mom helped. So that I have the flexibility, I could go to the school, then I reached the high school. Then suddenly, as a teenager, when your life is starting to flourish, you become a refugee camp. So we are taking all my mom's patients, everyone's friends. I, I'm losing my bedroom, my bed, my everything. My room becomes a, a whole family's house, you know, the cousins and uncles and everything there. So it was really frustrating and, and, and being in, in completely a shift of your, your life overnight. Overnight, my mom tells you, you know, you need to wake up in the morning. You need to make sure everyone fed, you know. You, it's my character, my attitude and my, my, my job changed you know, overnight. Like you cannot have any attitude. You just listen. You work and you serve. And I, I think for being a humanitarian embedded for me a very early age, which sometimes I wish I could stop. You know, sometimes as young age, I got used to serving and, and helping people. Sometimes like, okay, I don't need to do that. So it, it becomes your daily habit, which is gives you bad side effects. But otherwise... I'm very happy to be in that environment because it, it taught me to appreciate what I have. You know, I wouldn't be appreciating, you know, having wonderful parents, having a house and having, you know, a, a future set up for me where hundreds of thousands of girls never had it. So they never finished the high school. They never went to you know, college. I got an amazing opportunity and I'm grateful for, yeah. for being my parents. So what, what is the current estimation of the refugees living in the camps in Somalia right now where you are working? What are the challenges that the camps are facing today as of now with the pandemic going on? I, I don't think so. Uh, now in Somalia, it's getting much better. The condition, you know, the, the civil war is moving out. It's getting much better. 
but the numbers in uh, in uh, in uh, IDB camps, internally displaced people and refugees, uh, basically most of Somalia is internally displaced and outside of Somalia. Uh, those people are in the city of Mogadishu, where I'm now. I'm focusing in their humanitarian help. It's almost it counted 800,000, so almost a little bit under one uh, around around the city and outside of the city. So that's the numbers. Still, there's a lot of displaced people who don't have houses. They don't know their future, or maybe they sold uh, because they displaced because of the war. So it's getting better. The, the, uh, government is focusing how they're finding a whole department. We are trying to transition. In our camp, we just basically transitioned everyone. Uh, we help them to settle and find a space. Now we provide on healthcare services and the water and everything. So we closed that IDB camps we had. We were running so long because one thing we discovered for the last 30 years, we creating dependency. So those people are become only dependent on us and our foundation and being in this uh, heaven, they're not willing to move on. They're not willing to find a jobs or find a, a place where they call themselves. They just wanna stay there and get fed and sleep and nothing. So I think to break that, we need to demolish all this IDB comes and find a transitional home, what we call let them have these homes. Maybe it's free. Maybe they can contribute some of their income. But that's what we are planning to do. And and having ten years in a camp and third generation was like, it's it's it become really a thing that pulls all three million people that who's internally displaced over all the country become dependent on international NGOs. So yeah. I think uh, it's 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 a disaster. I believe age is supposed to be uh, in a certain time and certain years, but if age passes 30 years, where a young parents they are they were refugee and now they're parents they're 30 years old. Can you imagine now they having their own children, but they have nothing to tell their own children except to be in IDPs. So they never had a normal life and and you know never had a house or income or job or. So that's that's very important to to have a discussion and break it. So that's the situation IDBs in Somalia. Yeah, you work a lot on maternal health as well. Can you talk a little about the status of women when it comes to um, you know what you know what are the challenges that they are facing when it comes to healthcare during the pandemic during the lockdown, in terms of also how are they sustaining through with or without you know, provision to healthcare around them? Um, Somalia is the second worst in maternal mortality rate, only South Sudan. So that tells you something. Uh, when you have the highest maternal mortality in the world, second highest. Uh, a lot of things we've been doing since 2019. The reason I have a Hagarla is to figure out really what is the exact cause uh, the root cause of these issues. It is a lack of uh, skills, it is a lack of uh, access to healthcare. What is the problem? And what we have seen, we're compiling now two years' data, and I hope we can publish somewhere next year. We're we seeing every day is uh, also uh, culture contributes a huge number of that maternal mortality death. So because they send the hospital is last minute, they think hospital is the death place. They don't go, they trust more 
the, the several surveys we did, they trust almost in over 90%, they trust traditional healing than medical doctor. So Western medicine and, and traditional medicine. So the, it's, I think one of the reasons I hope we can start working is how we can combine this traditional healing and Western healing together, how we can build trust, so we can gain the trust of the mothers. So if we keep insisting and saying, oh, everyone is wrong, we're right because we learn from West. You know, we, I know how to say I'm obstetrician. I, I have this, I do. If we keep doing this attitude, we keep losing people. So I think we need to be more humble and understand the culture and say, okay, we will, you know, we will make a step. We come to over to you. You need to come over to us. So then I think that's what I'm, I'm, I'm thinking to do in, in my next two, three years to focus, to create a program where we can combine this. And also, we, you, you have to make sure the uh, traditional birth identity is delivering 70% of Somali's mothers. They don't get skilled birth. So 30% only are midwives delivering. The 70%, you can tell how huge is the gap, are delivering grandmothers who deliver their grand-grand-grandchildren. So they trust that grandmother than me, who's obstetrician. With 20 years experience, they will say, no, I don't know you. Because this mother delivered my mother, I know she delivered. Uh, and and I think we need to find or educate them those TBS traditional birthdays or have a adjacent co 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 facilitated like I can work with ten of them. Me obstetrician, I can help them if they have a, a problem. So that's one of the solutions we're looking. But the problem is huge, and unless. Somali government steps in, which is too far now. They're all busy with security and security issues. They have no time for help or any development. But I think in the future, the government has to step in. How many patients seek help in the hospital every day? What, like, uh, you know, what, what, what are the kind of cases that are coming in and how difficult it is to treat the number of patients with limited manpower during the times of a pandemic, especially? It's exhausted, but pandemic has really slowed our numbers of patients because we are not dealing with COVID-19 patients. We're sending any COVID symptoms to the central hospital that deals with COVID. We usually see minimum 20, maximum 200 events of the day, the season, you know, malaria outbreak or a pneumonia outbreak. So it's, it fluctuates extremely. Ramadan is next month. It's a slow. Only the deliveries and emergency cases come. So it's a seasonal. So average, we see minimum 20, maximum 150. So that's what we, we have uh, annually, uh, I mean daily visits. Okay. So we do have uh, several clinics in the community. We open mobile clinic. We have uh, two different community centers, those are seeing average of 15, 20. They're very new, they're in, in their community also. So I think overall, uh, we're opening fourth clinic now. So yeah. we want to expand uh, hospitals and accessibility of health, you know, clean delivery and safe delivery to the village. Yeah. And uh, how are these issues being addressed by the government? Has, it, has the government been supportive? How, has they be, how have they been dealing with, um, you know, managing COVID-19? Is the burden on private uh, individuals like you who are running medical camps or are government hospitals also functioning with uh, in the same manner as you are? It's, it's a difficult. I, I run, I, 
the good thing we created a, a national cost, which helped a lot last year to reduce the effect of COVID-19 because we have population, a very young population. Somalia over 75 is under 30. So I mean under 40. So you can see the majority of society is very young. So they were able to recover from COVID-19. So one of the, the big things we have, we did, I worked last year is a COVID to make sure young people with the sinus symptoms of COVID, if they're not severe to stay home. So the few elderly, which is less than 3% who are with comorbidity, all those are, we were emptying for the beds to become, we didn't have ventilators. We were not ready. When the COVID hit last year, we had only 19 beds. And by the time we, we finished first wave, we have over 50 ICU beds. The good thing in Somalia, it has been several famine and several you know, disasters and there were uh, people or the government or non-profit organizations, international nationals are, are set up a mechanism where they can quickly react an emergency. So they set up one hospital very quickly. We had that was not enough. Private sectors were also serving a community because 90% of healthcare in Somalia are run by private sector. So the government only runs three hospitals. You can imagine, Mogadishu, we have four million people, three hospitals they run. Without, they don't even, can, they cannot cover the supplies or medication. It's just the beds and some services. So this year, second wave of COVID was much harder than last year. So the death toll this year, this second wave was much higher. What we lost the whole last year, we lost this year one month. So last February, we lost 120 people. That's the number we lost last year, whole year, COVID in, in the first wave. So it was much harder. Now it's in the, in the rural area and uh, different states. But we pushed the private sector to have the COVID hospitals. Two private hospitals who were well equipped, they came in. So we built a private public health sector relationship to help COVID uh, uh, response. But uh, it's not easy. The government is not set up. They want to do a lot. They want to help. We communicate every day, but their capacity is very limited. They don't have funding. Allocation of funds to the government, to the healthcare is very limited, very, very small. So basically they cannot run their own hospitals, forget about supporting others. So that's the situation Somalia in, in healthcare. Okay, um, I'm, on that note, we're going to wrap up, but I have my last question for you, Dr. Deko. Moving forward, what is your dream for the people of Somalia? You've been uh, working in the humanitarian and the healthcare sector for years. What is it that you wish to achieve through your work and how do you plan to carry your mother's legacy as well? Oh, that's a big question. Uh, I have a lot of dreams. <laughs> But in the same time, being in Somalia and working in this environment, I learned to be realistic. I will be happy to leave behind if I have a, a system or an institution that continues the work my mother started or expanding or leaving behind skilled people. One thing I learned in my work is that money can come and go. But if you have a people in a place who have the skills and knowledge and and a moral compass, things will be fine. You know, you, you can gain the money, you can expand. So I think I'm putting my, uh, you know, energy and my resources and everything 
to have the best people in the place because the country was brain drained. Our country lost two generations because of civil war. So I think that's what we're missing. That's the first thing. I cannot solve all the issues in the ground. It, it needs uh, centuries to come or even maybe another 30 years to fix something. But I think we have the best opportunity in Somalia to leapfrog all the health issues around the world. So we have a, if we learn and do the right way and learn from the mistakes of others, we can just leapfrog and have the best healthcare system within short. So, you know, it's, it's really great. I'm so glad that we were able to have this conversation and good luck with all the amazing work that you're doing. And it's wonderful to also see you uh, be so motivated and dedicated to uh, the humanitarian and the healthcare system in the country. So good luck with that. And thank you so much for coming on the Sanya Paruki show today. Thank you for having me. Have a wonderful day. You too. On that note, um, I'm going to wrap up. Thank you so much for watching all of you who have joined in. I hope that you will subscribe to our YouTube channel and follow us on Facebook, on Twitter, on Instagram, and also Spotify. And do sign up for our newsletter for all the updates on the Sanya Faruqi show. Thank you so much for watching. I'll see you again next week.